she got COVID, uh, was placed on a ventilator, um, her last hope to survive, but she didn't survive. And she died, I believe, May, in May at the age of 58. Hi there, it's WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. And on this episode of the WAMC News Podcast, I'll speak with Boston Globe reporter Mark Arsenault of the famed Spotlight team. The investigative unit has been taking a hard look at an uncomfortable subject, death, and how disparities in Massachusetts influence both life and death. Before we talk about what you found in this uh, long investigation, um, take us through what you gathered in terms of materials to take a look at this issue. Uh, Yeah, that was sort of the heart of the project, was the data that supports it. Um, A lot of spotlight projects, they're they're really data-based investigations. And uh, so we started with, uh, by filing numerous public records requests over even, I think, I believe a period of years to get death data from uh, the state of Massachusetts. I mean, the death certificates are public information in Massachusetts. You can go to the vital records office and for $20 get a certified a copy of any particular death certificate. But if you want all the information from death certificates uh, and the 50,000 or so people who died a year, then uh, you really need that in a different form. So we needed to get a hold of that information in in massive spreadsheet form. Uh, and we eventually were able to do that after we had filed a lawsuit against the Department of Public Health and won it. And we were able to assemble a database that included all the information we needed for uh, every person who died in Massachusetts from 1999 through the first half of 2020, uh, about 1.2 million people. Well, generally speaking, how do uh, people die in Massachusetts? Where does it happen and under what conditions? Well, uh, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, uh, there's a lot you can learn about people, about, about the state of Massachusetts, by who dies. Uh, it's a, basically before the pandemic, it's about 160 people uh, a day die in Massachusetts. And it's, um, uh, it's funny that it's, it's almost like a clock. I mean, 160 and then some days 155, some days it might be 170, but it very rarely goes out of that really narrow band. It's uh, kind of uncanny that way. Um, you know, most people die of, uh, you know, long-term chronic disease, heart disease, cancers, uh, renal failure, thing like that. Things like that. There are a couple accidents a day um, that are, are fatal sometimes. There are, you know, uh, sadly about one homicide a day at, by average. And, uh, you know, shockingly, there are um, more than twice as many suicides a day as there are homicides. I mean, we, we spend a lot reading and writing about crime and, and homicide, and we should, but, the, but a far greater taker of lives is suicide. And uh, uh, the pandemic, of course, changed all this. I mean, if you look at everyone who died from January 1st in Massachusetts through, uh, I think, sort of the beginning of the July is where our statistics, we had to cut it off somewhere, so that's where we cut it off. Uh, COVID-19 was responsible for about 20 percent of the, of all the deaths in Massachusetts in that time period. Wow. Um, the pandemic has obviously exposed a lot of the um, inequities in health. Uh, what were the factors that went into why um, white people, you know, experience end of life and death differently than black people even before the pandemic? 
Right. Well, in Massachusetts, um, first off, most of the people who are dying now are white. I mean, whites make up about uh, white people make up about uh, before the pandemic, about 88 to 90 percent of the people who die every day in Massachusetts, even though white people are only about 71, 72 percent of the state. And that makes sense when you think about when the people most likely to be in the group who are dying today, people of a really advanced age, when those people were born in the 1930s, let's say, it was almost an entirely white state. So as the states become more diverse, the uh, other populations are just younger. And uh, uh, what we have is a, is a core population of uh, elderly white people that are producing most of the deaths that happen every day in Massachusetts. So that's one factor to think about. Let me just ask you how uh, a person's income during their life influences uh, how they die and when they die in general. Sure. Yeah, income is, uh, we found in our reporting that income is a big factor in uh, when people die and where they die. And the 50 uh, richest census tracts in Massachusetts, and the census tract is, uh, is an area about, you know, one to 8,000 people. Uh, uh, sort of smaller than a zip code. So we tried to use the, the smallest unit that we could to get the most accurate data we could. Uh, the median age of death in the highest income census tracts was about 85 in the year 2019. Uh, if you go to the very bottom, the 50 poorest census tracts in Massachusetts, the median age of death in those tracts in the same time period is about 70. So we're talking about a 15-year life gap between the richest and the poorest parts of Massachusetts. And again, these are places that are, I mean, it's not that huge physically a state, that are not that far apart. Why exactly people from poor uh, income areas die earlier is, you know, not entirely understood. Obviously, people with money can afford better health care and uh, preventative care that might catch problems sooner People of lesser means are known to present at the hospital with sort of more advanced conditions, uh, making them uh, more difficult to save. Uh, you know, stress, smoking, diet, all these things, uh, the way you take care of yourself, the, the uh, stress of uh, not having enough money, the, the having to work multiple jobs, all these things potentially play a factor in this huge gap. But what we did find is that there is this huge gap. And if you were to look at things, not just by median age of death is what we did. We also looked at life expectancy, which is another way to calculate longevity. And uh, that's a super complicated mathematical formula that I could not explain. But uh, essentially, uh, uh, that looks at death rates projected forward. So a baby born today uh, in Massachusetts would be expected to live, you know, our life expectancy is in you know, the lower 80s. That is, if death rates stay the same, a baby born today could be expected on average to live about 80 years. In some of the lower income areas, that is much lower. That's maybe in the mid-70s life expectancy, while in the higher income areas, it is still in the mid-80s. So whichever way you look at it, either looking back at past deaths or looking forward, projecting death rates onto sort of people born today looking forward, uh, the outcome is the same. And that is income matters in how long you live. Your uh, report focused on uh, a woman who had died uh, in our listening area. 
And uh, the pandemic, I think, really exposed this type of inequality in society where a lot of people on the lower end of the economic spectrum simply couldn't do jobs where they you know, built a home office and worked from home. Uh, she was working in a nursing center that had a, you know, a coronavirus outbreak and sure enough, you know, couldn't give up shifts, it sounds like, you know, needed the money and kept going to work. And um, she had unfortunately died at age 58. So also like the type of work you do has to play a role here, right? Very much so. I mean, if you've, I mean, you know, my wife and I are both reporters and uh, since March, we've been, you know, essentially working from home. I've been to the Globe office. Uh, I just went for the first time just a couple of days ago to uh, record the voiceover for the video that went with, went along with the series. But uh, we were very fortunate. We, we uh, work in jobs that you can do remotely and lots of people don't. Uh, if you are a, you know, a train conductor or a, a, a a CNA like uh, Rosanna Wilson, the woman you've mentioned was, then if you want to get paid, you've got to be there. You have to go to work. There are just frontline workers who we call them essential workers, uh, even though she only made 16 or $17 an hour doing really unglamorous work, necessary, but unglamorous work, you know, taking care of people in nursing homes, helping people in and out of wheelchairs, changing beds, helping people use the bathroom, changing diapers. I mean, feeding people, this is, very essential but not glamorous work for which she was not greatly compensated. And in that work, yeah, she she was exposed to coronavirus. The home where she worked had an outbreak. I think, believe they've had 24 deaths in that home since uh, the beginning of this year, a COVID-related death. Um, she got COVID, uh, was placed on a ventilator um, her last hope to survive, but she didn't survive. And she died, I believe, May in May at the age of 58. And we found as we looked at people of working age who died of COVID in Massachusetts, we ran the statistic using our giant death database. People age 65 and under who died in Massachusetts, uh, we're presuming these are people who are still working, most likely, and uh, people of color um, suffered a greater proportion of deaths under the age of 65 than, than did white people. Your story also found a racial disparity in terms of planning for end-of-life uh, care, where um, white people were, were more likely to have filled out an advanced directive. They were more likely to um, take advantage of hospice care or be able to afford such services. And, uh, you know, minority populations were less likely to have filled those documents out or to have had uh, discussions ahead of time, you know, before they found themselves in a hospital. Is anything being done to to rectify that disparity? Well, the first thing that we've done to try to rectify it is to uh, is to present it in a clear eyed way. And so so people can see that there's a there is this disparity there. There are. Um, and it's very true. It's just in a poll that we did with Suffolk University before, just before the pandemic, we found uh, clear indications that uh, black residents of Massachusetts especially were m- much more likely to seek more aggressive care at the end of life. And this is in part because of a fear of not getting enough care. There's a, there's a lovely family in, in the story, the Burroughs, 
who were from the South. Uh, Bessie Boros remembers uh, not being able to sit in the same waiting room as a, as a child, as white patients, uh, when she was growing up in Alabama. And, and, they, and so there is a definite history of, of Black Americans in this country feeling like they're not getting equal care from the medical system uh, as white people. And that legacy of that uh, especially among the older set, is something that affects the way they view end-of-life medical care. When we looked at uh, death with dignity or physician-assisted death, uh, there's a lot of different, different names for it. The program by which uh, states, some states allow terminally ill patients of sound mind to seek a doctor's prescription for lethal drugs that they can take to end their own life. Uh, I've talked to some people who have participated in this program and, um, you know, some of whom actually have taken the drugs and are no longer alive. Um, but when you look at the people who, who are using it, in every state that we looked, you know, California, Oregon, Washington, for example, are three, are three big ones. Uh, in every state that we looked, the people who are participated in this program are far whiter than the people, than the overall population of the state. So it's still, uh, they call it death for dignity, but it's still pretty much a white phenomenon. And it's the idea that you want to avoid excessive medical care at the end of life so that your last, uh, your last moments on earth are as comfortable uh, as possible, even if that means giving up a few weeks or months uh, that aggressive care might give you at the expense of whatever vitality you might have left. You know, one reason why I think this um, series has struck a chord is that uh, it's a topic people don't really like talking about and thinking about. I mean, <laughs> to be a, a human being going through the world is to try to, you know, subsume thoughts of death as much as possible, um, at least on a daily basis. I'm wondering how looking at all of this data and these trends impacted your own views about uh, death and end of life. Oh, yes. It's, uh, I mean, it has. It has. I mean, again, we've, We've been talking about, uh, we started this series in 2019, and we were on the, pretty much on the verge of publishing it in uh, January and February when the pandemic just erupted here. And uh, we all just, we put the project aside and, and everyone on the spotlight team just jumped in and we just did daily stories trying to pitch in and cover the, uh, the peak of the pandemic here through March and April. We go back to the series and we're like, well, that was pretty strange. We're writing a series about death, and we just had this massive outbreak, this unprecedented amount of death from this one virus. Uh, is there any way to save the material that we had already reported? And we realized there, there really was. I mean, we, we, we changed the series to incorporate COVID-19. We didn't, we didn't write a new series. And because uh, all these themes of are, are themes are sort of um, elemental and permanent, and um, the uh, the idea that some people some people die where they many people die where they don't want to or where they would prefer not to uh, that that has really come to I've talked to a lot of families where that was the case, and it and it really has that that's been one of the more bothering things for me is that there are you know seventy two percent of the People in this state, according to our poll, would prefer to die at home, but only about a quarter of people do, and uh, you know, regardless of their income. Uh, and that's something that I that, I, that has really stuck with me and, and uh, continues to bother me. 
especially during COVID. I mean, so many people, you know, went in because uh, they weren't feeling well and, and never came out and, and their family members couldn't really see them again because of the, the spread of the virus. Yeah, we had I talked to a woman from Boston who uh, her name is Ellen Strickland and her she's in the story. Her husband of 27 years, uh, his name is Tom Davis, uh, who's an Air Force vet. Um, you know, uh, they had a they had a really wonderful life together, sort of got met, got together a little later in life and and uh, and brought each other a lot of happiness. And she was really reluctant when he was diagnosed with covid to call an ambulance and have him brought to the hospital because she knew that, you know, with the restrictions on visitations in place, and this was in April, right at the peak, uh, that she would never see him again and that potentially he would die alone. Um, So uh, he was one of the few, only about 2% of people who died of COVID in this state uh, since since, uh, the beginning of the outbreak actually did die at home. I mean, the the, uh, the risk of infection just sort of obliterated the, the notion that um, people could have a, sort of a peaceful home death um, surrounded by family, which is sort of what I think um, most people near the end of their life would be looking for. That's Mark Arsenault of the Boston Globe Spotlight team. You can read their series looking into death in Massachusetts and how disparities affects it at the Boston Globe. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Ian, thanks for having me. All right, that does it for this episode of the WAMC News Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Till next time, I'm Ian Pickus.